Thanks very much, Pete, and good evening, everyone. I'd like to offer a short prayer uh, over that passage before we consider it together. Lord God, you are our Father, and as a good Father, you will give good things to those who ask you. We ask you now to open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts to your word, that you would show us wonderful things, and that having shown us wonderful things, you would show us how better, how more truly, how more faithfully we can love your Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another in his name. Amen. Uh, There may be some of you here, as far as I know, who may be hoping that I would be speaking on Matthew 21 rather than 25, because you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've already heard Jonathan speak on Matthew 25. Uh, If that's uh, the the case with you, then please bear with me. If this is the second time you've heard me speak on this passage, then uh, have mercy on me. This is the third time I'll have heard me speak on this passage. (laughs) Nevertheless, I am still excited by this message of Jesus. It is absolute dynamite, is it not? Absolute dynamite, this teaching. It comes at a most strategic point in his ministry. It's his last piece of public teaching, just a couple of days before his crucifixion. And this is what's on his heart to say to his disciples. Um, The subject matter is stunningly important The language is absolutely vivid in technical detail. And we really want and need to give our attention to it. It's the kind of passage, I think, that we feel, many of us, that we actually know already quite well. Um, But my fear is that both I and you, from a superficial reading, a glance at the passage, may think, well, I think I probably know what he's saying there. If we are kind to everybody, then God will let us into heaven. And I want to take great care with these very serious, important words of Jesus. I'd like to spend some time picking our way through, carefully through uh, this passage to see exactly what Jesus is saying, step by step. Then seeing if we can determine the center, the nugget of gold uh, in the heart of this passage and then to see what it might say to us as uh, a gathering of Christian people and others who are interested in the Christian faith and perhaps considering becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Absolute dynamite. I actually make no apologies for a third visit of this passage in the course of one day. And... uh, It's a part of a series then under the general heading of Everybody Welcome. And it may not be obvious to any of us at first glance what this passage has anything to do with a church um, uh, developing its uh, its strategy and its ministry of welcoming. But we shall see. So we're in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. I plead with you to have uh, a Bible open in front of you so that you can be Berean readers of Scripture and, and check to see whether these things are so or not. So we're in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, and it's page 995 in the Church Bibles. Uh, 
And the heading is, surprisingly or not, uh, depending on how you read uh, the passage when it was read to us a few moments ago, the heading is, Welcome Me, Welcome My People. Let's see how we get there as we walk carefully and steadily through this passage. So that's what I want to do with, uh, t- together with you, first of all. What do we find if we start to outline this passage and note its key, the key steps in this teaching? Well, first of all, we hear the Lord Jesus speak of a glorious coming. And that coming concerns himself. Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's, in fact, his favorite self designation. In Matthew's gospel alone, over two dozen times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, sometimes referring very much to his humanity. The Son of Man, he said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But also, When Jesus speaks of himself as son of man, he has very much also the other side of that title, which is a side that represents great glory, exaltation, power, authority, and dominion. Because that title, son of man, derives from the seventh chapter of the book of the prophet Daniel where one like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days and was given authority over everyone and everything. And it's in that sense that Jesus is now referring to himself as the Son of Man. Think about it. Jesus, human, so therefore understanding our humanness, our frailty, but glorious too. Jesus about to go to the pain the suffering, the humiliation, and the death of the cross, but now looking beyond that to his resurrection and exaltation and then to a future day when he will come as the exalted Son of Man, a glorious coming. Secondly, Jesus speaks of a worldwide gathering, the first part of, uh, of 32, All nations will be gathered before him. And that little phrase, all nations, kind of sparks a connection in my mind, I wonder if it does in yours, when a little bit later, after his resurrection, Jesus will send his disciples out to all nations. And now all those nations are being called in to give an account um, uh, of themselves and uh, for Jesus to, uh, to make his judgment, to pronounce his judgment of all nations. There is something in there about all nations' reception of Jesus and his message, his gospel, his good news. It's a worldwide gathering. Everyone will be there. Everyone from every geographical area on earth, Everyone from every age that has lived, you and I will be there. We must all, says the Apostle Paul, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each of us and all of us have a date with destiny. Thirdly, we hear in this passage of an exact separation. A separation between the sheep and the goats. 
Now, in New, Test- New Testament times, um, and in fact, I was hearing, um, after I spoke this morning, um, uh, somebody say, even today, in Ethiopia, for example, sheep and goats are herded together, at least during the daytime. And sheep and goats in that part of the world are very difficult to distinguish from one another. In fact, the, at, at a distance, I was, I was told, the only reliable way you can, you can distinguish between a sheep and the goat is that, is that goats' tails go up and sheep's get, tails go down. It's a difficult separation to do. But Jesus says, I will do that separation in, with infallible accuracy. The kind of thing that a shepherd would do at the end of the day. Sheep and the goats herded together during the day in the field, separated at night. And that's a separation that Jesus says he will do. The human race is mixed now, but will be separated into not one, not three, not five or ten, but two distinct groups. Aren't you glad... (laughs) that Jesus will do that and not you or I. That Jesus can be left with the knowledge, the wisdom, the heart-searching, infallible knowledge to be able to distinguish between the sheep and the goats, those who are to go on his right and those who are to go on his left. Let that be a warning to us that it's his job to do that, not to make rash judgments ourselves as to who is in and who is out. We can and we ought to set before men and women, our friends uh, and neighbours and uh, uh, school friends and fellow students, we ought to set before people uh, the criteria, the standard, the requirement for counting oneself as a sheep or a goat, one who will find uh, his or herself on Jesus' right or left. But the final decision is not ours, And we do not make rash judgments about that ourselves. I'm sure there will be some surprises, perhaps many surprises on that today, as to who has truly accepted the gospel and embraced it and lived it and who has not. Fourthly, we read in this passage of a dual, a twofold destiny. Those who are on Jesus' right, the sheep, will hear the word, come. Do you see that in verse 34 and verse 46? The word, come. What a wonderful welcome that will be. When the Son of Man says to that proportion, which, by the way, is described in the last book of the Bible as a multitude that no one can number, a vast number of people, will hear that wonderful word, come. Come to a kingdom that has been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. And the others will hear another word. They will hear the word, depart. Do you see that in verse 41 and 46? Depart. What a terrible banishment that will be. They will depart to a place that was never intended for them in the first place. Jesus says it was prepared not for them originally, but for the devil and his angels, as if to say that they will depart to a place that is unfit for human habitation. 
Then Jesus uh, sets out a precise criterion, the standard against which some will be invited to come and others will be banished with the word depart. Now here's where we have, perhaps for many of us, a major surprise in this teaching. Because the criterion that distinguishes the two groups of people is this. It's service to Christ. It's service to Christ. Look carefully with me, please, at verse 35. Jesus sets this down as the criterion for hearing the word come and entering God's glorious kingdom. I was hungry, he says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. They, that is the set, those simple acts of kindness, of the criteria that Jesus sets down for acceptance into God's kingdom. Are you surprised by that? I think many people are surprised by that. Uh, perhaps many of us who've grown up in, in, in good Bible-believing and, uh, and Bible-teaching circles might say, might respond to this by saying, well, I thought that we were saved, we received salvation by grace through faith. And now Jesus is saying, but it's to do with how, what your, your deeds were. So is Does the Bible teach salvation by grace through faith? It certainly does. But the witness of the Bible is is absolutely consistent that the kind of faith that saves is a faith that is a living faith. It's a faith that works. Uh, It's very clear in the epistle of James, for example, in chapter 2, when he says, faith without deeds is dead. And Paul the Apostle says uh, pretty much the same thing in Galatians chapter 5. The only thing he says that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then the Lord Jesus himself says, Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So these good deeds performed to Christ are not the basis of our salvation, the basis of our faith, but they are the inescapable evidence and accompaniments of it, showing really quite publicly that our faith was real and living. So there's the precise criterion that our Lord sets out. Now comes a puzzled question on, part, on the part of both groups of people. And their question is this, Lord, we never met you. How could we possibly have done these acts of kindness or failed to do these acts of kindness for you? Because we never met you, we never saw you. Do you see that question being asked in verse 37 and verse 44? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? needing clothes and clothes you? When do we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And Jesus gives this intriguing and very striking explanation. 
in verse, uh, uh, in verse uh, 40 and verse 45 again. Whatever you did or did not do for the least of these my brothers, uh, least, least of these brothers of mine, you did or did not do for me. I'd like to be absolutely crystal clear here, please, that whenever in Matthew's gospel Jesus refers to his brothers or his brothers and sisters or the least of his brothers and all those, that kind of terminology, on every occasion he's referring to his disciples. That's the way that language is used throughout the gospels. So what Jesus is saying here then is this. Whatever you did or did not do for the least one of my disciples, you did or did not do for me. I think then we have reached the heart of this passage. It covers many things, not least of which is about final judgment upon which I have, uh, have touched. But I believe that the heart of the passage is found in verse 40. When Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus counts kindness to himself as kindness uh, to his people. So having got that far and worked our way through the passage, I would like to now spell out some implications. In case you're counting, there's going to be three. Implication number one, and I hope you can see clearly how this arises from the passage and from that central teaching of the passage. Implication number one, to belong to Christ is to belong to his people. There is, in Jesus' view, no such thing as a solitary Christian. Some of you know what's coming next, so please bear with me and humor me. I would like you to turn your head around 360 degrees and glance at everyone who's sitting near to you. The person on your left, the person just in front, the person on your right, and the person just behind. You can say hi, give them a smile, give them a grin, for goodness sake. Go on. Let's have some smiles. But just notice, thank you, just notice who is sitting around you. Thank you. You're humoring me very well. Thank you for that. Okay, you've now noticed who's sitting around you. Okay? Now, with, that, with those people in mind, listen to these words that come from the late Bishop uh, Geoffrey Paul, who said this, There is no way of belonging, to, of belonging to Christ except by belonging gladly and irrevocably to that marvellous and extraordinary ragbag of saints and fatheads <laughs> who make up the one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. Thus, us folks, with all of our oddities, our strengths, our weaknesses, our frailties, our young age and our very extreme old age and so on, that is us. Then there's no way of belonging to Christ apart from belonging to Christ's people. I wonder... What would happen if, uh, or how you'd feel if you knew of somebody who had a ticket to every one of England's 
football matches in Russia over the next few days, but never went to any of the matches. I wonder how he would feel about someone who had a, a large family, but never met up with any of them, not even on Father's Day. Well, have you made a commitment to Jesus, but not yet really a commitment to Jesus' people? And there are various points in many of our lives where it becomes particularly critical for us to consider that. Obviously, when we first become Christians, we need to be considering very clearly and very carefully how and to whom will I attach myself? There is a worldwide church to which you already belong, but you need also to belong to a local outcrop of that local church. And two, as we go through and beyond teenage years and perhaps leave this church, uh, leave home and go somewhere else uh, as, as a student to college, university, another critical point where you're saying to yourself, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but listen carefully. If you count yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to find other people who are also followers of Jesus Christ. They need you and your unique gifts, and you need them. Take a log fire, burning brightly. Take one of the burning logs out of it, away from the central fire. It'll probably go out. And sooner or later, your Christian faith will become severely weakened, if not extinguished, if you don't attach yourself to one of these ragbags of Christians. I can't say it has to be Holy Trinity. We think we uh, need you and you need us, and we think we, we, you can bless us, we can bless you. But find a church, find a fellowship of Christians that loves Jesus, understands and believes and proclaims his good news, his gospel, that teaches the Bible, that seeks to live out those truths in everyday life and come, pardon my language, hell or high water, stick with them. We have recently considered um, some passages in the book of Acts, the early days of the Christian church recorded in the book of Acts. And on the day of, after the day of Pentecost, um, when 3,000 souls were added to the Christian church, we then uh, read these words. And uh, I think it was Richard who spoke from uh, these words only. I'm losing track of time, forgive me, I think uh, last Sunday evening. They devoted themselves, these converts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. To be saved is to be added to the number of Christ's people. Apparently, to belong to Christ is to belong to Christ's people. Secondly, to serve Christ is to serve his people. As we have seen, Jesus counts kindness towards his people as kindness towards himself. Now you're asking, I hope, I think, should we not be kind to everyone? 
Yes, of course. Of course we should be kind to everyone. Read the books of, uh, books of Amos or Micah in the Old Testament. Or the Gospel of Luke or the letter of James in the New Testament. Look no further than the teaching and the example of Jesus himself. Of course we should be kind to everyone. That's a very much a big part of what Christians are all about. But Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, would have, uh, is echoing the teaching of Jesus when he says, Galatians chapter 6, let us do good to all people, but especially, he says, to those who belong to the family of believers. And why? Because they are, because we are a family and we owe our first love and our first allegiance to them and to Christ in them. What a difference it makes to know that when we welcome at the door, we're welcoming, welcoming Christ. When we serve at the hatch, we're serving Christ. When we visit our Christian brother or sister who is ill and not able to make it to fellowship here on a Sunday, we're visiting Christ. When we sing or play in the band, we're singing and playing to Christ. To serve Christ is to serve his people. And now thirdly, to love Christ is to love his people. I wonder if you've heard the saying, it's quite common uh, these days, for people to say that they like Jesus but hate the church. Now, if the thinking of the church as institutionally conceived, you know, the, the institution of the church... I kind of understand where they're coming from, and I'm quite a bit sympathetic with that. But if we define the church properly in a New Testament way, the church as the body of Christ, the people of Christ gathered, then it is not possible to love Christ and hate Christ's people, hate his church. I have been... uh, uh, encouraged and thrilled by several testimonies in just in recent weeks, including as recently as this morning, uh, of uh, folks both outside and inside our fellowship who have commented on the degree of love and support and kindness that we have for one another. And we're looking to build on that and develop that even more. Because it not only builds us up in our faith, but is a living witness to the world around us. By this, Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So therefore, I love you. And I will seek to build you up and not break you down. I love you and I will go the second and the third and the fourth mile for you. I love you and I will not flatter you but rather speak the truth to you in love. I love you, and I will put the best and not the worst complexion on your words and your actions. Because to love Christ is to love his people. P.S. There was once a man in the early days of the Christian church who hated Christ and hated the followers of Christ. Uh, He had been persecuting the followers of Christ in a terrible way. He'd been at least party 
to their execution. He was walking down the road, or traveling down the road one day, and Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus said to that man, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, do you get the connection? He had been persecuting the people of Christ, but Jesus counted persecution of them as persecution of himself. And that man, Saul, said, Lord, who are you? And the reply was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus counts kindness and lack of kindness to, him, uh, to, uh, to his people as kindness and lack of kindness to himself, uh, 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 to himself. But that man was transformed by that meeting with Jesus. He had been a goat, but he became a sheep. Transformation is possible. Transformation does happen. Each of us and many or most of us in this place tonight would count ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Each one of us has experienced a transformation. Not necessarily a blinding light on the road to Damascus, but a transformation. And I want everyone here tonight to be clear that this is the time of transformation. We have not yet reached the great day of judgment when the great act of separating out into sheep and goats will happen. This is the day of opportunity. This is the day of God's salvation. This is the day to say, I want to believe and follow Jesus Christ and attach myself to his people. I want to be a Christian. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your words are faithful and true. Hard-hitting, yes. But thank you that you love us so much that you tell us the truth. And thank you that you love us so much that through your death and resurrection and through your life-giving spirit, we may all have life in you and inherit the kingdom of God. And may we all commit ourselves to one another as we have committed ourselves to you. And so build one another up in our love and faith and joy in you. Amen.